Um, I, uh, I'm so honored and excited to be here. I've been married for uh, going on seven years this year, and um, I actually have a picture of my wife up there if we want to show it. That's my wife, Kelsey. Um, she is the most, like, delightful and resilient human being I've ever met. Um, she, uh, you have to be resilient to be married to me. Um, that uh, copper dog that I'm holding, that's her dog Shiloh. She's uh, my dream dog. She's a German Shepherd Husky mix. Um, and then the little white dog is our dog Halpert, after Jim, for anybody who watches The Office. Um, and if, that always get weird. Like, I take Halpert with me on car rides, and like, people ask me his name, and I either get like, that's the coolest name ever, because they love the show, or I get really weird looks, because it's like, what's a Halpert? Anyways, um, I'm really excited to be here uh, because uh, I, I, you guys have a really amazing leadership team here, and I don't, I'm sure you're aware, but I don't know if you know how amazing that there is just this desperation inside of your, your leaders to see a, a transformative move of God to bring restoration and healing in people's lives. And um, the level of, of contending before the, the, the throne of God that takes place is actually rare. Um, a, lot of, a lot of church leadership is kind of business and meetings and just kind of getting into the routine. But I came here this morning and there was a, a prolonged time of just prayer and contending for the work of the Spirit in you guys. And that is a, that's a gift. Um, Pastor Isaac and Pastor Chris are really good Good friends of mine. Um, they, uh, they actually are pastors to me. So when I'm sorting through big decisions and life stuff, they're the people I call. So I just want to affirm, I'm sure you already know, but I want to affirm you guys have an incredible leadership team here at New Hope. Um, are you guys ready to get into the word? All right. If you have your Bibles, please open them to John chapter five. If you have your Bibles, John chapter five, I'm going to pray real quick. Um, Lord, I just want us to, to take a moment to stop and acknowledge that you are here with us, um, that you are present to us in this moment, that as we gather together, as we pray, as we dive into your word, we are approximate to glory. We are intimate and close with the creator and the designer of all things. And Lord, I just ask that that would fill us with a, a tremendous sense of awe and wonder and surrender this morning. And we love you, Jesus, in your name. Amen. There's a gentleman by the name of Johan Hari, and he is a, he's a renowned journalist um, who, who covers his kind of main area of expertise is he covers the areas of addiction and suicide and depression and anxiety. And Johan is a man who, who is kind of determined, he's made it his life goal to answer the question that more people are asking now than have ever asked this question before in our history as a country. And that question is, why am I so depressed? Johan is compelled to answer this question. And this is honestly, this is a question that a lot of scholars, a lot of professors, a lot of researchers, and a lot of journalists and doctors are trying to investigate the answer to. But he has kind of made it his life's mission to answer this question. I'm sure most people in this room are already aware of this, but we are in what most mental health practitioners have referred to as a full-blown mental health crisis. And it's easy to assume as life is coming back together in, after COVID that a lot of this depression and anxiety and the raising of tension inside of our souls and our minds that we're experiencing has to do with the collective trauma that we all experienced in the past year and a half. But most of this studies that talk about about the severe impact of depression and anxiety that people experience happened long before COVID. And as most people in this room, I'm sure, can testify to, COVID sort of accelerated and intensified 
that process, right? How many of you guys, I mean, just by show of hands, felt, had that moment of anxiety during COVID where you're just like, I have never experienced something like this before. Okay, a few of you are being honest. I, I don't believe the rest of you. So like, like how, I mean, there, there, I had moments where I was just like, I, I don't know how I'm going to get through this. And I, I, my, I had a pretty cush life during COVID. Like I look at how, how my marriage did pretty well and my, my finances did pretty well. I was not somebody who lost a job or lost any of those things. And I still experienced seasons of anxiety and breakdown. According to the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, in 2020, 1.4 million people attempted suicide last year. 1.4 million people in our country attempted suicide. 48,000 people effectively committed suicide. On average, there are 138 suicides per day, and more people from various age demographics, religions, and ethnicity than ever before are admitting to having experienced depression, anxiety, addiction to some sort of substance, and suicidality. Now, suicidality is the thought of minds being plagued with thoughts of suicide. So Johan is a man who himself wrestles with anxiety, depression, and a few years ago, he traveled the whole world talking with every leading mental health practitioner he can find from every region, um, and he did some research, and what he found I don't think can be overlooked, and this is going to tie into the passage, I promise. But he found that idea that we have all been told a story about the factors that result in suicide and anxiety and depression. We've all been told that a lot of the depression and anxiety that many of us experience has to do with the biochemical drama in our brains. A lot of it has to do with chemical imbalances and um, genes that we've inherited from people. But Johan discovered that there are actually nine primary reasons people struggle with anxiety and depression. And out of those nine primary reasons, only two of them have to do with the chemical imbalance in our brains. The other seven are all stuff that happens in the physical world. Like, for example, one of them, that, one of the big, big uh, uh, causes of anxiety and depression is the lack of meaningful community. And he refers to these in terms of lost connections. So lost connection to meaningful community. You guys know this. We live in a world where, like, it has never been easier to be isolated and then dilute ourselves at the same time into thinking that all of our needs are being met. Like, we can watch streaming services. We don't even need to leave to get groceries. I can get DoorDash or Grubhub to bring me groceries, and I can actually trick myself into thinking thinking I have everything that I need while being isolated and cut off from the world around me. But another lost connection, and the one that I want to focus on here this morning, is what Johan calls a lost connection to meaningful values. He says that a lost connection to meaningful values results, one of the biggest perpetrators of anxiety and depression in our world. And there's a quote that I want to read from his book. The book is called Lost Connections. As somebody who has battled a lot of depression and anxiety, I found this book very helpful. So if you are interested in reading it, I do highly recommend it. But in the book, he says, depression is not always a disease. Sometimes depression is a normal response to abnormal life experiences and malformed values. Just like junk food makes us physically sick, when junk values overtake our minds, they make us mentally sick. Just like junk food is bad for the body, junk values are bad for the soul. And the more likely a person is to believe that the cure for their internal aches can be found in things like money or sex or positions or power or status, the more likely they are to experience depression and anxiety. 
lot of studies correlating these two things. The more likely you think you can cure the internal aches and longings of your soul with other stuff, the stuff, honestly, the resources that culture provides us with, the more likely you think you can turn to those things and find the healing you're longing for, the more likely you are to not just experience depression and anxiety, but to dive further into depression and anxiety. And what's fascinating to me about this is that while Johann laments the loss of meaningful values in our culture, but he is a gay atheist. This is different than Franklin Graham going on Fox News lamenting the end of family values. This is not the type of person that you would traditionally expect to be mourning the lack of meaningful values in our world, but he has seen the resources that culture provides for a meaningful life, and he has discovered that they have left him and millions of other people in desperate situations. Western secular culture is obsessed with happiness and well-being, and time and time again, it fails to provide the resources to meet those needs. And we actually live in a machine that's designed to get us to ignore what is most important about life. The more we look around, the more we live in this world, so much of it is curated to keep us dissatisfied and distracted. And much like the postmodern world we live in, uh, as we look into this story, we're going to find a number of people in John chapter 5 who are looking for healing and meaning in all the wrong places, who find junk values and become not a junk person, but <laughs> that, that's mean. That's harsh. I'm sorry. So we're in John chapter 5. None of you are junk people. I would never say that. I don't know you. Maybe you are. I don't know you. Anyways, we're in John chapter 5. And Starting in verse 1, and just to give us a little context, Jesus has just gotten done talking with the woman at the well in Samaria, and like literally revival breaks out in Samaria, and now Jesus is going to the temple for a Jewish festival. Starting in verse 1. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here, a great number of disabled people used to lie. The blind, the lame, and the paralyzed. So Jesus goes from Samaria, and in case, case you don't know, Samaria and more specifically Samaritan people are people that are despised by the Jews. They despise Samaritans. And he has the audacity to go straight from Samaria to a sacred Jewish festival, to the temple, the place where God, the presence of God is supposed to dwell. This is a lot of like, maybe let's say you're hanging out with people who are, not that any of you would do this, but you're hanging out with people who are smoking weed and drinking whiskey and then you roll into church. Even if you didn't do that, the smell of it is on you because of who you were with. Who you were with. This is a very similar situation. Jesus is coming from Samaria, a place that Jewish leaders would never in their right minds go to, and he is going to the temple. Now, a little historical context. Jesus is walking to the temple, and at this temple there is a pool that the scriptures call the pool of Bethesda. Everybody say Bethesda. So he's walking to this pool, and most archaeologists believe that this temple and this pool were built during, by like the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, when the temple was being reconstructed after they left Babylon. So there's this pool, and it was probably built for the purpose of ceremonial cleansing and washing, the kind of Jewish version of baptisms. And as he's walking up to this pool, he sees a great number of lame people. Archaeologists have discovered that what we see here in the story has a lot more to do with an, with an adopting of Roman cultures, customs, and superstitions than it actually does with the traditional Hebrew belief. 
So they discovered evidence that while the Roman Empire, when they invaded Israel and they kind of created their occupancy there in Israel, they took this pool, this pool of Bethesda, that was supposed to be like a a sacred ceremonial cleansing place, and they created it a shrine to their God of healing. The God's name is Asclepius. Everybody say Asclepius. And then as soon as you're done here, you need to call your parents and thank them for not naming you that. But the pool's name, the the, the God that is enshrined there is the the Roman God of healing, Asclepius. And the, the, the Roman people had a belief, listen to this, they had a belief set in stone that Asclepius would bubble the waters and the first person to jump into the pool would be the person who was healed. What does that sound like? Sounds like something that our Jewish friend in this story believes about this pool. We're going to get to that in just a second. So this pool, originally intended for Jewish ceremonial purposes, has been appropriated by Roman invaders, and it is a gathering spot for the most vulnerable in their society. Jesus interacts with a lot of outsiders in his ministry, tax tax collectors, prostitutes, Samaritans, but no one was more helpless or more powerless than the disabled people represented here at this pool. This is not a place, again, that religious leaders would have gone. In this day and age, there was no honor or esteem attributed to somebody who spends time with people who can't help them back. And this day, it was really, we think we live in a dog-eat-dog world now. Back then, I mean, that was it. Now, I want us to look at something because this is actually really strange. How many of you guys have your Bibles in front of you? All right. So if you have your Bibles in front of you, if you have NIV or ESV in front of you or a couple other translations, you're going to look at the verses and you're going to see verse 1, verse 2, verse 3, verse 5. What's missing there? Verse 4. Good job. We're counting. Good. We know this. Verse 4. What's interesting to me is that within my, as I was preparing for this message, like I'm looking at my Bible and verse 4 is missing, and I'm like, well, what the heck? Why is verse 4 not there? Upon a little research, what you guys are holding in your hand, and if you don't know this, is, is a translation from different languages, different documents that were written in three dead ancient languages. And when I say dead, I mean nobody speaks it just casually anymore. So what we hold in our hands is, is a translation from Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic. What we have has been translated from ancient ancient documents that people find. And kind of a rule in biblical translation is the older the document, the closer it was to the original author, the closer it was to the Spirit of God inspiring that author to pen the text. When we originally translated the Gospel of John, we had a document that we thought was the oldest document in existence. Are you guys tracking so far? Later, Later, archaeologists found an even older document that had even more in common with the other Gospels. And they were like, okay, this is actually the document that we need to start translating in our Bibles. So one of the things is that older document that they found did not have verse 4 in it. So a lot of translators in your Bibles went back and they said we're taking verse 4 out of it because they don't believe it was in the author's original intent. What they actually believe is that at some point down the road when somebody was, because they didn't have a printing press back then, right? So you had to kind of scribe it all out and give letters to people that had the gospel accounts in it. They believe that somebody was like, well, hey, this, there's an important context here that the apostle John just kind of ignored. So we're just going to kind of add that in there real quick. Now, depending on your view of scripture, this conversation kind of gets a little uncomfortable because it's like, well, I thought 
Scripture was the inerrant, inspired, authoritative word of God that is completely free of errors. I believe that Scripture is the inspired word of God. I believe that everything in Scripture is there because God willed it to be there. But it is so important to understand that as we are reading Scriptures, we have to be humble in our dealings with Scripture because there are a lot of human influences when it comes to translations. A lot of us feel like we can take the Bible and use it as a weapon to violently crush people over the head with it. But when we have this thing, we have to recognize that yes, the scripture is inspired and authoritative, but we as interpreters are not. There are things in there, countless things in there that are humanly influenced when we're reading these translations. So that should bring us to a place of humility as we approach the scripture. So this missing verse four contains this story of the Jewish man talking about how they were waiting for an angel to come down, stir up the waters, and the first disabled person to be able to make it to the waters would be healed. Almost identical to the Roman myth about their god, Asclepius. You guys tracking so far? Okay, going into verse five. One who was there had been, invalid, had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes ahead before me. All right, so no, I like this, I like this right here because there's something really important here. We already talked about how no religious leader worth their salt would approach this pool full of invalid people, full of disabled people, and Jesus does. He goes from Samaria, a place that no religious leader would ever go, directly to this, this populated area of the most vulnerable in society, and he notices them. And not only does he notice them, he notices this man that even the other outcasts don't notice. Right? He says, no one takes me into the pool. When it comes to this community of, of, of outcasts, even I don't have a community within this community. So Jesus notices them. And here's what I love about this. We only, as people, we only ever notice things that we love or things that we dislike. But we never notice things that don't matter to us. Does that make sense? Jesus is seeing this man because he loves him and he dislikes his condition. He noticed it. I love movies. Like, I'm a big fan of movies. Um, so, like, I, I have spent an unwell amount of hours, like, just watching movies and, and watching, like, YouTube videos about film theory and acting methods and directorial choices and framing shots. It's not healthy, but it's kind of what I do on my free time. And I, I love that stuff because I know that when a director is making a movie and he cares about the project that he's working on and he cares about the audience that he's making the movie for, he's going to insert all sorts of choices to enhance the viewing experience for us. From anything as big as an explosion to as subtle as just the way that he set his camera up. And I notice that stuff because I love that stuff. But the flip side is also true. There are directors who literally don't care about the project, who just want to get their paycheck. They don't care about the audience. And so they're not going to throw in like choices that make the movie more interesting or enchanting for the viewer. These are what I call bad movies. Like these are movies that are not interesting to me to watch. And I notice these things because I love these things. I, I've been in a, like they call it a cinephile. I've been a movie freak my whole life. It's the way I bonded with my dad. Jesus notices this gathering of outcasts because he loves them. He notices the gathering of outcasts because the outcasts are worth noticing. So Jesus noticed this group 
And then he asks this one specific man, do you want to be made well? And as I read this, I kind of want to be like, well, that's a stupid question, Jesus. Like, of course he wants to be made well. Leave the questions to us. You do the answers. You're not good at the questions. Like, that's what I want to say when I read this. I'm, no, I'm not, I'm not going to hell. I love Jesus. But anyways, like, there is, I read that and I'm like, duh, Jesus, of course he wants to be made. You think he likes just lying there? But upon further inspection... I think that Jesus, by asking this, is doing less of a, like, hey, I want to know, and more of making a point. Do you actually want to be made well, or are you content to spend the rest of your days on your back, comfortable with the excuse that someone else always goes to the water before you? And notice how the man responds. He responds not by answering Jesus' question. He responds by giving the justification for why he is not already well. There's something here, and and maybe it's harsh, but I know in my life and in the lives of a lot of people that I know, and maybe this is true for you too, there are people who are unwell, physically, spiritually, emotionally, and some of the people around that person will look at them and say, do you even want to get better? Do you want, do, do you enjoy this condition? Jesus can come and he can bring the touch that restores. Jesus can come and his touch always carries the potential for transformation, right? But unless we want to be healed, unless we want that transformation, unless there is something inside of us that recognizes, no, broken, flawed, can't do it myself, unless we actually desire that for ourselves, that thing that should be a totally life-shifting moment just sort of becomes that cool thing that happened one time. So Jesus asks the man, do you want to get well? Or another way of looking at it is this. Jesus, uh, Chris quoted uh, A.J. Swoboda earlier in the, in the service. And A.J. in his book, After Doubt, when asked like, hey, why, why do you think that so many people are leaving the church so quickly? A.J. said, and I, and I love this, he said it beautifully. He says that when, when people in the church kind of see something wrong, When they see something, uh, a wound taking place or a bad choice taking place, we are bad at practicing spiritual consent. We just go in there and we completely disregard their own autonomy and their own choice to decide who gets to speak into their life. And we just tell them what we think without first asking if we can offer something to say. Jesus could just say to this man, get up and walk. He could just say, get up and walk, but Jesus is practicing spiritual consent. This is a beautiful image of the kingdom of God, you guys. It's easy to miss in our culture because in our culture, we kind of prioritize this might, conquest, achievement, uh, result, and results. But the kingdom of God is not a coercive kingdom. It's not a forceful kingdom. The kingdom of God is gentle and free and honoring of people's dignity. And Jesus is modeling that for the man in the story. Verse eight, Jesus said to him, get up, Pick up your mat and walk. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and he walked. The day on which he took, oh, the day on which this took place was a Sabbath day. And so the Jewish leader said to the man who had been healed, it's the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. But, but the man replied, the man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, who is this fellow who told you to pick up your mat and walked? The man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. 
Okay, so a lot of revealing stuff is happening here. First of all, Jesus performs this miracle on the Sabbath. We thought it was bad enough that he was just hanging out with those crazy Samaritans. Now he's working on the Sabbath. That's a big no-no in ancient Jewish world. Again, Jesus is showing that he is more interested, not as interested in appearance of propriety for religious people. He is interested in honoring the will of the Father. And sometimes those two things contradict each other. The appearance of propriety for religious people and honoring the will of the Father will sometimes butt heads and you will have to pick one or the other. So Jesus performs this miracle on the Sabbath and then the Pharisees get involved. And when in the Gospels, when the Pharisees get involved, you're always about to see some really healthy leadership taking place. I'm just kidding, not at all. If you don't know, the Pharisees were Jewish religious leaders and because Jewish people were under the occupancy of Rome and because Roman customs were slipping into the Jewish beliefs and mindset, I mean, we have a perfect example with our story right here. A young Jewish man adopting the Roman myth and superstition and kind of turning it into this weird Jewish hybrid version of it, because the Pharisees saw this taking place, they were extremely conservative and protective with their law and their values. And it's really easy to kind of poop on the Pharisees because like they're always getting in Jesus's way. But the motivation isn't always to just be legalistic monsters. Sometimes the motivation is, look, our culture is slipping right out of our hands. We have no power. And the one power we have, we have to protect our sacred rules and living. They wanted to protect their identities as followers of Yahweh. So the religious leaders, and this is what's really frustrating to me, they clearly do not recognize this man. Because don't you think that if they recognized this man, they would have been like, what the heck, why are you walking, right? Like this man has been an invalid for 38 years. That just shows you. These were not the type of people to be hanging out by this pool, literally right next door to the temple that they work at. This pool populated by disabled people, they don't recognize the man. They don't see him. And what's even worse, this is even more frustrating. When they say, hey, why are you carrying your mat? The man responds, the man who made me well told me to do it. And their response isn't, praise God, you've been made well. Their response isn't even, who made you well? Their response is, who told you you could pick up your mat? Who's stepping on our authority here and telling, giving you permission to disobey us? Because they're so obsessed with, with the rules that they need to protect, they miss a miracle. It's right in front of them and they don't even see it. Verse 14. Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, see, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had made him well. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. In his defense, Jesus said to them, this is key. My father is always at work to this very day. I am working too. So they confront Jesus. They start, start an argument with him. And Jesus tells them his motivations just flat out. As long as the father is working, as long as the movement of the kingdom of God is taking place, I am working. And in saying this, he's saying two really offensive and controversial things to that day. The first thing he's saying is that God cares more about people than he does your religious observances. God cares more about people than he does your religious sanctimony. But the other thing that he is saying, probably even more controversial, is that by saying that he's the son of Yahweh, he is saying that he is the incarnation of Yahweh. 
And I, this obviously goes over very well with the Pharisees and they all get saved and they repent of their sins. <laughs> if only. Actually, not if only. I mean, Jesus kind of had to go to the cross, but... So we're going to kind of stop our story here because we could go on and see what the Pharisees do, but I want to make some observations about this story before we conclude this morning. There's three perspectives kind of surrounding this miracle, three points of view, and each point of view is placing their confidence in a different thing when it comes to this miracle. The first point of view I want to look at is the man. This paralyzed man, nearly four decades, spin on his back, hoping that he would be healed, maybe hoping that he would be healed. A man identified by his issue. Notice we don't know his name. We know his issue. He's the paralyzed man. Imagine this, 38 years, looking at a healing you can never reach, seeing miracles you can never touch, or believing that miracles are just around the corner, that your circumstances are going to change. A man looking to the customs of his culture to bring him healing, and he is consistently left unsatisfied and unseen. And his misplaced confidence is leaving him in a place of desperation. Uh, we have a slide for this for the note takers in the room. Confidence for this man, confidence in, his custom, in the customs of his culture, left the paralyzed man at the mercy of how his culture viewed him. I'm going to say that again. Confidence in the customs of his culture left the paralyzed man at the mercy of how his culture viewed him, which was a lame beggar. There was nothing more to his identity than that. The Roman Empire, they prized themselves in being the most civilized and enlightened society in human history. And with good reason. Did you guys know that they had indoor plumbing 2,000 years ago? They were able to get hot and cold water into their Roman coliseums and houses. 2,000 years ago, they were the creators and innovators of philosophy, the rules of logic that they put in place we still use today. They were the most enlightened at that point, civilization and human history. But what's interesting is while they had indoor plumbing before like the pioneers did, like 1,500 years before the pioneers did, while they had indoor plumbing, they were using lead pipes to bring plumbing into their population. What happens if you drink water from a lead pipe? You get lead poisoning. And in the ancient world, without the advantage of modern medicine, that's a really good way to accidentally kill your people. So with all of their innovation and with all of their achievement, the Roman Empire was still unknowingly pumping death into their civilization. This is important. They thought they were the most advanced enlightened society in human history. They were unknowingly pumping death into their culture. They thought they were giving them blessing, but they were giving them a curse. And guys, our culture is no different. Our culture will consistently tell us, take this, it's a blessing, it's a gift, and some of us will just believe it. We'll just believe the stories that it's giving us, and we'll believe it so much that when the, 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 the bottom falls out and poo hits the fan, like when that stuff takes place, we will look to the resources that culture has offered us for healing and meaning and the, and the resolve and satisfaction that the internal longings and achings of our hearts experience. These are the junk values that we were talking about this morning. They promise us to give us a happy, good life. And the more we take the fruit, the more we redefine good and evil for ourselves, the more miserable we become. Just as the man placed his confidence in a pagan pool for healing, we today in our world, we place our confidence in our careers, our abilities to achieve, the next sexual satisfaction that we can find, 
We place it in ourselves. Maybe we'll find enlightenment and healing within our own selves. Maybe we on our own are enough to bring about the healing that we long for. We find it in entertainment and distraction. We look for it in power or money or some sort of spiritualism or the Enneagram. Like we look for it in all this stuff that culture offers us and we're missing the true source of healing that's being offered to us. I believe that there isn't a person in this room who doesn't have an internal ache or longing that desires to be healed. And I don't think there's a person in this room who hasn't stumbled into the resources of culture and found it wanting. Some of us will keep going to it, hoping this time it's going to work. Or we're just satisfied with the 30 seconds of euphoria we get to feel when we turn to it. Because at least those 30 seconds are a distraction from the constant ache we feel. I think if we're honest, a lot of us have our own healing pools that we look to, to bring us, the des- to meet the desires of our hearts. So that's the first perspective, the perspective of this paralyzed man. The second perspective is the perspective of the Pharisees. This man had been near the temple, okay, for almost four decades, and they didn't know him, literally, right next door to their house, to their, I mean, sorry, to their place of work. And even worse, they were offended when he was healed because it happened on the wrong day. They were people whose confidence was in their ability to discern the works of God rather than being in the work of God itself. Their confidence wasn't in the work of God. Their confidence was in their ability to predict, define, and discern when it was taking place. And because of this, because of their misplaced confidence, rather than worshiping and partnering with God, they accuse God. So their confidence in their piety left them as enemies of God. Their confidence and their piety. And notice, this is really hard to see sometimes. It's hard to discern the difference between, is my confidence actually in the work and the will of the Father, or is my confidence in what I've been told to look for, what I've been told to believe that God will do? And in, their, in our church, churches all over America, this is a massive temptation for us. Just as the Pharisees look to their ability to, to predict the work of God, we do the same thing today. We try to predict God. We try to define what God would do and would not do. We insist that we will know how God will do a thing. And when it doesn't happen, sometimes we throw a fit and leave or we harden our hearts. We refuse to question whether the convictions we have that we so violently hold to, whether those convictions are actually rooted in the scriptures and the way of Jesus, or they were informed to us by people with other motivations to lead us to other allegiances that we are unaware of. A good way to see if you have this mindset, a good way to see if you, if you have the mindset where your confidence is in your religious mind, is when you see that you are missing the good and beautiful work that God is doing every day. Jesus says, the Father is always at work. Always at work. So if you're somebody and you feel like you haven't seen a good and true and beautiful thing in a long time, that's because you missed it. Your confidence was misplaced. But the last perspective we need to look at is Jesus's perspective. He goes to the place other religious leaders wouldn't. He sees a man other religious leaders have ignored for four decades. He honors the man by demonstrating spiritual consent and the non-coercive kingdom of God. And he invites him into healing. Jesus prioritizes the well-being of the outcast above the comfort of the religious elite. 
Jesus' confidence is placed in the ongoing work of the Father to populate earth with the life of heaven. His confidence is placed in the ongoing, unceasing, never-ending work of the Father to bring heaven to earth, to populate earth with the life of heaven, or N.T. Wright says it, colonize earth with the life of heaven, to just create little colonies where the kingdom of God is touching earth. He's not confident in his culture's vision of healing, and he's not confident in his own religion's vision of healing but he's confident in the kingdom's vision and he just moves in this awareness that God is always at work, just walking with knowing and eyes open, ears to hear, eyes to see. God is always doing something. And it's in this space, it's in this awareness, this connection to the presence of God where the paralyzed man finally meets the healing he's always been searching for. His culture had failed him His religious leaders had failed him. But there was one place where his longings and his ailments and his desperations found the satisfaction that they ached for, and that's in the presence of Christ. So we have three different places of confidence that kind of translate to our our context. There's a confidence in culture to bring healing and the resources it provides. There's a confidence in religious systems and thinking and kind of predicting God. And then there's a confidence in the always acting, always loving work of God. And while this story shows us the true source of healing, which is the presence of Christ, it is also an invitation to place our confidence in the same things Jesus places his confidence in. We are called to build our confidence around the awareness that God is always moving. He's always doing something. So I'm going to end with three takeaways that we, and then we'll, we'll wrap up. The first takeaway to kind of establish our confidence in the same place Jesus did is to make ourselves present to the presence of God. Make ourselves present to the presence of God. Jesus had a regular habit of being alone with God. You see, all throughout the Gospels, Jesus goes to solitary, silent places to just be with God. And if Jesus needed that time alone with God, how much more do we need that time alone with God? Time alone with God, it gives us the spiritual antenna to pick up what God is doing in the world. I think sometimes we will walk by potential miracles every day, but because we're so distracted and unfocused on the work of the Father, we just, we just miss it. So you guys did a series on your Pentecostal heritage recently. Am I right? You guys did the Pentecostal question mark. Yes, we are. I love that. But a big piece of reclaiming that Pentecostal ethos is being aware of God's presence in the world. That's the first step. The disciples devoted themselves to prayer and fasting before the Holy Spirit fell on them. They were with God before they did anything for God. The second thing is, see the ones religious folks ignore. See the ones religious folks ignore. I don't know if you know this, but churches are able to keep going and keep their staff cared for because of the generosity of tithes. And that's a good thing. That's how God designed the ministry to be funded and to function. But a negative aspect of that is that because we are compelled to like, we only keep going as long as tithes and belief in a mission are happening, sometimes pastors and church leaders will prioritize bigger givers over other people. I'm going to say that again. Sometimes pastors and church leaders will prioritize the bigger givers over other people. 
This has caused us to overlook the people that Jesus went out of his way to notice. The work of God is most obvious in desperate situations. The work of God is most obvious in desperate people. And if we want to bear witness to the work of God, if we want to have a sense that we know what the work of God is, is in our world, we have to be close to the desperate. Jesus controversially taught that in the kingdom of God, the last in society will be first, or the bottom of culture is going to be moved to the top. He also taught that however you treat the last in society, Jesus will receive it as if you are treating him that way. And if this is true, then to be close to the dirty and left out, to be close to the outcast, is to be approximate to glory. That it is to be close to Jesus himself when we go out of our way to be approximate to them. And lastly, obey the call of the Spirit, even when it offends religious and cultural sensibilities. Obey the call of the Spirit, even when it offends religious and cultural sensibilities. In a world as binary and polarized as this one, there's almost a war of allegiances taking place. You know, on one side, you have a group of people, um, we call them secular people, who long for the ideals and the benefit of the kingdom of God, but they want it without King Jesus. They want it without the one who can actually make those things effective and stick, because we have this belief that we can be our own gods. We can be the own rulers of our lives, and the map, we can map out our own destinies. But on the other side, you have people who have this fearful, defensive grasp on the way things have always been done. This fearful, defensive need to conserve what they were taught when they were younger because they feel it slipping through their fingers. And it leads to this arrogance and this smugness that is unbefitting for followers of Jesus. Jesus invites us to reject this binary. He invites us to do away with it. And he invites us to pledge our allegiance to him and pledging allegiance to Christ invites the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. If you're feeling desperate for a move of God, and if you're feeling like you haven't seen a move of God in your life in a long time, where is your deepest allegiance lie? Because when your deepest allegiance is to Christ, it can't help but just open up heaven to pour down on you. When the Spirit is at work, the spaces between heaven and earth, it becomes thin. And if you're walking in those thin spaces, if you're walking in just that awareness, gosh, the kingdom could break through at any moment here, then you're walking with an, a heart that is in allegiance to Jesus. And I notice this, this is important, because notice how when Jesus goes to the man, notice as he's listening to the call of the spirit, he doesn't go to the man and chastise him for where his confidence is placed. He doesn't say, why do you believe that this pool is going to heal you? He doesn't say, you, you bad Jew, go back to synagogue and read the Torah more because this is obviously pagan. This is obviously secular. This is obviously not the things of God. He doesn't do any of that. All he does is he goes to him and he says, do you want to get well? He is kind of removing the religious baggage on him. It's easy to critique, it's easy to argue, it's easy to throw stones, it's easy to call out things that we don't like. It's really hard to say, actually, I know who has the resources to provide you with a meaningful life. And it's Jesus. Do you want to get well? So make ourselves present to the presence of God. See the ones religious folks ignore. 
and obey the call of the Spirit, even when it offends cultural and religious sensibilities. You guys ready to pray? Lord, I just ask uh, for myself and for everyone in this room um, that there would just be this posture of surrender in our hearts. Jesus, that there would be this willingness to just say, you are king of my life. And as king, you are always at work. You are always moving. And God, we just ask that you would highlight our misplaced confidences. We ask that you would show us like every time we pick up our phone just because we're bored, where is our confidence being placed? Every time we send judgment to somebody because we don't like a choice they make or how they're dealing with a painful situation, where is our confidence being placed? Jesus, we just ask that your spirit would come in conviction and empower us to repentance. But more than any of that, we ask that it would empower us to live in a world where you are Lord, that we would walk as signposts of a greater kingdom and a greater reality. And we love you, Jesus, in your name. Amen.